Welcome back to Noggin Notes Podcast. This is episode 26, and if you're still with us, that means that I didn't totally upset you with that last uh, podcast, number 25, where I took some fairly large swings at conventional thinking around mental health and mental wellness. This one is the start of a three-part series on people who struggle with intellectual disabilities, and we're going to be joined by one of Zephyr Wellness's employees, Heather Milligan, and I think you're really going to like what she has to say about the subject. That's all I'm going to say for Zephyr Wellness, other than check out ZephyrWellness.org or the Zephyr Wellness YouTube channel to see more about what we do. I want to talk about January 13 because it's coming up real fast. And on January 13th is going to be an event in Clifton Triangle, on Clifton Triangle, as they say in the UK, on Clifton Triangle in Bristol and at Taboo Nightclub. It's going to be 24 hours of house music for better mental health. And all the proceeds generated from this event go to support Mind organization, mind.org.uk. And Mind is a nonprofit that helps to spread awareness and resources to people struggling with mental illness so that they can recover and uh, you know go back to living life the, how they want to live it on their terms and getting what they want. So there's going to be uh, DJ sets from Banjax and Funk Agendas, uh, DJ Craig Brown with uh, Dance Floor uh, going on the entire time from Bradley Gunn Raver. Uh, DJ and Raver will go straight through for a day and night long marathon. It starts at 4.30 a.m. on Saturday and goes through 4.30 a.m. on Sunday. And I've, I've spoken on this before, but if you missed it, I, it's, <laughs> providing music for a long period of time is very, very challenging. Providing live music is ridiculous, and providing live music for a day straight I, is mind-bending to me. So I applaud these guys for doing what they're doing. I think it's going to be amazing. I wish I could be there, but I live in the United States, and I'm on a budget, and I have a family of four, so I can't just uh, fly over to the UK for a all-night house music party, even if it is for a good cause. But if you want to donate, like me, and you can't make it, go to justgiving.com. And uh, it's justgiving.com slash fundraising slash 24 hours of house music. That's the number two and the number four. Uh, check out 24 hours of house music on Facebook. You can check out Taboo Nightclub Bristol on Facebook. And of course, keep following Noggin Notes. Without further ado, I bring you part one of Understanding Intellectual Disabilities with Heather Milligan from Zephyr Wellness. I'm Jake Wiskirchen. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Naga Notes podcast. Thanks for joining us again. My name is Jake Wiskirchen. I am your host. And this week we're talking about intellectual disabilities as advertised in the intro. And with me, I have Heather Milligan. And Heather is a current graduate practicum student at North Central University doing her internship at Zephyr Wellness. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Zephyr, and then we'll get into the intellectual disability part of your career. At Zephyr Wellness, I'm a practicum student. I see clients just like a licensed clinician might, but I'm in practice. So I'm learning to treat families and individuals um, and all subsets of relationships. And you're learning that under my supervision as well as our clinical supervisor, Jesse Lott, who has made an appearance on this podcast. True. And you're learning lots. Lots. Not Jesse lots, but lots <laughs> of information. What... What are you doing with uh, intellectual disabilities? What makes you an, an, an expert, so to speak, in this arena? So outside of Zephyr Wellness, um, 
I work in the community as a program coordinator for an agency that supports adults with intellectual disabilities um, in a residential and in a dehabilitative setting. Meaning that they live in these homes and you help them uh, learn how to live. Exactly. We do... um, We help with activities of daily living and that might be going in and providing respite care to families who support their their family member and we go in and, and respite them, break them in some way um, so that they can remain in their natural environment or we provide group homes um, that we staff 24-7 and um, those are more designed for people whose families need extra extended care because they're unable or unwilling to provide support for their um, disabled family member. Outside of that, um, there are individuals with intellectual disability who live in their own apartments, and then we go and support them in a more independent living. I did not know that you did that too. Yeah. You've been doing this for a number of years, I think, what, seven or eight years with the same company? Um, I've been with the same company for nearly 10 years, and I've been volunteering with special populations for 15. That's a long time. Good for you. So you're going to be doing a little Q&A with me, and uh, we're going to do a three-part series. This is part one because this is a huge topic, and I promised the audience over and over through our podcast that we're going to keep the podcast short so that we keep keep people's attention spans uh, attentive and we're not going to bore them. But for those who want to go deep, take a deeper dive, we'll provide parts two and three and you can listen to them in sequence, I suppose. Um, let's, let's start by defining what an intellectual disability is and how do people struggle with intellectual disabilities. So an intellectual disability, I think, is more commonly known and um, as mental retardation. It's not terminology that we use anymore. We yeah, use... that's, that got changed a couple of years back when the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that we use in our field, uh, altered the, the language from mental retardation to intellectual disability, correct? Yes. And that was driven largely by legislation, I believe, that, uh, or, I'm sorry, legislation is now changing to reflect that because in our codes and statutes and laws, we have references to these folks who struggle with these things so that they can get support services and so forth and uh, they can qualify. So the important thing is to, if we want to change language, we change it first in practice and then it trickles out into the law. What was the reason for changing this? I think it's it's destigmatization for sure and it's respecting respecting an individual for who they are wholly, not necessarily the label that that they've been given. Yeah, and and I know that there was a big movement. Uh, there was even a website, you know, end the end the r word dot com or something or dot org, and it had to do with the word retarded. And I think that what ended up happening was too many people were using it as an epithet and throwing it around. So the decision was made on um, on a much higher level that we would move from the the word retardation, which really means a slowing, if we're to take a dictionary definition, and say that uh, people are uh, less able with their intellectual capacity, so therefore intellectually disabled, or intellectual disability, because we don't want to make it sound permanent either. Some people can, can recover from these to a certain degree, depending on what type of intellectual disability they may be struggling with. And you and I have talked about this before. What are some of the different types of intellectual disabilities? 
So intellectual disabilities, it can range from developmental, and that might be something like Down syndrome, something you're born with. Um, it, it can have a biological or neurological basis for it, and it can extend to traumatic brain injury, which is, you know, after... Motorcycle after, accident. A friend yeah. of mine had that happen once, yeah. Certainly. Um, or, you know, dementia Alzheimer's, which mm-hmm. is, again, more developmental, but... Um, it definitely impairs an individual's executive functioning. And the executive functioning we're talking about is the frontal lobe. And this podcast has spent a lot of time talking about uh, cognitive functioning versus limbic functioning, thinking versus feeling in that order. So if, if a person has an intellectual disability, we're talking about frontal lobe executive functioning. What, what are areas that get affected by that? Um, it can be adaptive areas like communication, language. Um, Knowing what the environment is doing. Right. Being able to interpret things. Yeah, orienting yourself, um, time, place, mm-hmm. further money management. Um, communication. Acti- communication. Ac- language. Language. Ac- <clears throat> da- um, activities of daily living. Oh, yeah, yeah. Being able to uh, function through one's day, through uh, bathing, cleaning oneself, putting clothes on, taking care of... Uh, daily business, transportation, navigation, all that stuff, right? Yeah. Cooking, cleaning. Working. Working, yeah. And and these, these all occur on a spectrum or so I'm told. There's there's mild to moderate to severe. Certainly. I mean, um, alike mental illness, there's, there's different intensities or severities in which a person experiences intellectual disability. Um, that might be anywhere from pervasive, where an individual is absolutely unable to talk um, communicate their needs in any way, shape, or form to someone who's quite high, high functioning and is able to live in their own apartment and right. get themselves to um, a competitive job in the community just like you or I. You mentioned mental illness, and we, we both work in that in that realm as well. So talk to me a little bit about the difference between dif- intellectual disability and mental disorder. So I see them actually as far more similar than different. Um, but I think that it comes back to that executive functioning. Mental illness, it, mental illness again, occurs on a, or exists on a spectrum. Um, it affects people's ability to think, um, behave, it, mood are those areas. And certainly intellectual disability almost always co- co-occurs with mental illness. Yeah, it's, it's really tough to, to be able to, uh, not to be able to, read the environment and, and function in your, in your frontal lobe and have a, a well-balanced uh, mental health Certainly. component. So uh, being able to be, you know, being frustrated, I should say, with, the, with your ability to interact with your environment and care for yourself and all that, so of course, would lead to things like mood disorders and anxiety and, and that kind of thing. So that makes sense. Yeah, and we all, I think that it kind of comes back to um, normalizing our, our human experience. Um, these people might be struggling intellectually to compete um, within the community or natural environments, um, but they're not unlike us. Right. In fact, I, I know that you and I have talked to, I've worked in, that, in those group homes and helped folks who have intellectual disabilities uh, and co-occurring mental illnesses. They may be they uh, an anger issue or uh, a mood dysregulation issue or uh, high anxiety, whatnot. And what I found is that 
simply loving them as human beings and not some second-class citizen who's hard to understand. And you know, seeing through those outward behaviors and connecting on an emotional level really helps to to re-regulate and validate. And and once you get through that. Uh, you can have a, a workable conversation just like you can with any other human being. Certainly. I think in my experience, what I witness um, is being talked about rather than being talked with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good good call. Yeah. And I think we do that with people who are struggling with mental illness too. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't know how many times we hear, you know, my sick kid, as opposed to, you know, hey, let's let's work with the kid to help him understand what he's also struggling with, like we would with any other issue, be it academic or physical or whatever. Yeah, I think that that's the exact example that came to my mind was, you know, when you get um, a family in session and they have to talk about the problems that are occurring within their home. Mm-hmm. Um, and they almost sometimes speak as if their child isn't sitting right next to them. And yeah. um, I think that that's much the experience of adults with disabilities. And not to rabbit trail too much, but I, I would liken it to a comparison of what media do to uh, professional athletes or to celebrities. We talk about them like they're some uh, object as opposed to a human being with you know feelings and 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 sensitivities and and real world experiences. We we almost refer to these. Um, these people on a pedestal as though they they are not like us. And I think we do the same thing with folks struggling with intellectual disabilities. So rather than trying to connect and and understand, we just say, you know, those people over there, and it makes it it easier if they're off of our plate, so to speak. They're not like us. It's easier just to channel them into some other direction. Yeah. The one thing I like to teach people about is dignity of risk. When, When we try to see ourselves apart from a person that we might run into in the community with intellectual disability. Um, offhand, an example that I can think of is um, perhaps being really generous to a person with a disability at a restaurant that you see. You know, mm. you might you might pay for their meal or something that extends beyond um, beyond what you would do for any other person. And um, is kind or as generous as that might seem, it it really puts them apart from from us, yeah. and it says, you know, um, I'm better than you in yeah. some way, or I'm doing better than you, and and it's less based in compassion and more based out of shame or guilt. Yeah, right, correct, and it's not the 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 person struggling with the intellectual the disability is shame or guilt. It's the individual doing the giving, shame or guilt. Totally. And uh, that's a that's a topic for a completely different day altogether. Um, I promised that we would keep these short, and I, all I wanted to do in this section is to highlight the differences between intellectual disabilities and mental illness or mental disorders, and then also define what intellectual disability is. I think that we've done that, and I want to give the audience a break to uh, do whatever it is that they do, even if it's to skip to the next podcast. So... Uh, Thanks for that, Heather. We'll resume with part two here shortly, and uh, we'll we'll take a break. And if that break happens to be a week, because that's how long it takes for us to post podcasts, so be it. (laughs) We'll pick back up with the audience uh, in a little bit. On behalf of the Zephyr Wellness and Noggin Notes crew, thanks for listening. And uh, check out uh, info at zephyrwellness.org or info at nogginnotes.com if you want to shoot us a question about this topic. Thanks for listening, and we wish you great mental wellness. We'll see you in part two.